What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Even before the show, people knew what that outfit meant. It was a visual signal. You didn't have to disrupt anything. You could go into a legislature. Nobody could kick you out because you weren't saying anything. And uh, I did have one professor at university who'd said, why don't you just forget all this nonsense about, you know, going to graduate school and, and writing and find yourself a nice husband. He did actually say that. If you have any, any young people in your house, anything can be made to talk. So, Hello, my name is Glass of Water. I'm saying hello to you. Hello, hello. <laughs> Eerie, isn't it? Hello, and welcome to this live podcast recording of the now award-winning podcast, How I Found My Voice. I'm Samira Ahmed, and the idea is I go behind the celebrity persona to find out what influences shaped their success. How did politicians, artists, writers grow up to become such great and unique communicators? And my guest today is one of the most acclaimed and successful writers in the world, the multi-award winning poet and novelist Margaret Atwood. Her latest novel, The Testaments, a much anticipated sequel to The Handmaid's Tale, was the literary event of 2019 and won the Booker Prize for Fiction. And I, I have to say, I interviewed Margaret uh, at the launch of it, the National Theatre. And it was quite something because this is my teenage copy of The Handmaid's Tale, which I read in the late 1980s, and it had a huge impact on me at the time. It was her second Booker Prize uh, for the Testaments. Her other 55 accolades, I counted them today, include the Arthur C. Clarke Award for Imagination in Service to Society. I think we might revisit that particular award. And in 2019, she was given one of Canada's highest honours, joining the Order of the Companions of Honour for Services to Literature. But for more than 50 years, Margaret Atwood has been a voice sending out stories that have explored the realities of the past and the possible future. Her books have been translated into more than 30 languages and have inspired screen adaptations and even an opera. Welcome, Margaret. Lovely to see you again. Take me back. You were born in Ottawa, but you spent a lot of your early childhood in the forests of North Quebec because of your father's job studying insects. What was young Margaret and young Margaret's life like there? Well, let's say when I was born, which was November 1939, and that would be a couple of months after World War II began. 
So that my, my early story is I was born into a time of great anxiety. So Canada went into that war as soon as Britain did, really, a couple of days later. And my early childhood was therefore a World War II childhood, but not the way people in England would have experienced it, because, of course, nobody was dropping bombs on northern Quebec. We did, however, have in the in the winter when I lived in Ottawa, uh, the family would spend spring, summer, and fall in the in the bush with the insects because my dad was a forest entomologist, and in the winters we would live in in cities, Ottawa, uh, to begin with, and we would have the blackouts and and we would have the radio at that time. There was no television. We would have the wartime broadcasts, which I do remember. This is London calling North America. Woo! Funny radio noises. So it was, it was sort of foggy at that time, the radio reception, but we, we heard those. So when we had the ration books, which were of great interest to children because they had stamps in them that you could lick. So all of that, but really pretty lucky because in the spring, summer, and, and fall, we were up in the woods and... It wasn't very anxious there. What effect did that have on you? Because I was thinking about, you wrote a book called The Malevolent North in Canadian Literature. Mm. And I wondered how far that sense was already emerging for you as a young child, even if the forest was a beautiful place in the spring and the summer. Yeah, well, if you read chapter four of that book, <laughs> so the the people who were first writing about Canada were, were not people who had lived there for 1,300 and more years, sorry, 13,000 and more years. So these were accounts written by incomers from Europe. So first from France and then from England, and they were coming into an environment that they, they were not familiar with and therefore which seemed pretty threatening to them a lot of the time. But when we get to female people writing about that same environment, they're usually not writing about the North as a malevolent female being. <laughs> they're not, not doing that. So I was looking at 19th century and, and early 20th century literature to write that. So these were people who were going, whoa, uh, I don't know how to handle this. There were not people who were saying, we've lived here for a very long time and, and we know how to deal with this. So once you get indigenous writers writing, it's a whole different story. Once you get female writers and then indigenous writers, it's not big threatening thing that's going to crush you and drown you and uh, freeze you. How early did you have a sense of yourself using writing as a way of expressing yourself? Up in the woods, there were a lot of things that weren't there. So there was no school. There was no, uh, well, television hadn't come in yet. Radio, we could basically only get Russia on the shortwave. There were no theaters. There were no movie theaters. There were no cinemas. There were no symphony orchestras. So all of the things you would find in a city in sort of good times weren't there. But what there were were books and there were pencils colored pencils, very valuable, and paper. So when it rained, you could amuse yourself by reading or writing and drawing, and that's what, as kids, we did. So I was an early writer, I was an early reader, 
and I was an early drawer of, of pictures. And I had an what older brother who was very well. My older brother was very into narratives, and they were they were war narratives. So he traded his pink, silver, and gold colored pencils for my red, yellow, and orange colored pencils to make explosions with. <laughs> I was going to say that's explosion <laughs> that's colors, isn't it? A lot of um, explosions. Yeah. So mine you, were a little frillier. I I did I did have some wars, but they were rather. Half-hearted, and the people, the rabbits firing off their guns were, were smiling eerily, which either meant that they were happy or they were sadistic. We do not know. So that went on quite a bit. So we had ongoing narratives that we would extend with these written accounts plus pictures. So when you did move to the city, because you did move to the city full-time, am I right, from the age of about seven? No, that wasn't full-time, not at all. No, we were still still up in the woods. Yes, I didn't spend a full year in school until I was 12. I was still leaving leaving in the spring and going back later in the fall. But those times got, times in the woods got shorter because by that time my dad was a university professor, so he had a timetable that was a little longer spent in the cities. So 12 is the kind of start of real full-on adolescence. At that stage, what was life like for you? What were you reading? What were the kind of influences? Okay, it was pretty weird for me because these were the days when you skipped. So I had skipped grade seven, which meant I had to do on my own Kings and Queens of England. Sorry, England, I missed proper instruction in you. (laughs) So, and because my birthday was in November, I was I was 12 going into what we call high school, grade nine. And it was an age when they, they failed people who, who didn't pass tests. So I was in grade nine with a lot of people who were 16 or almost 16 and were already shaving. So oh my goodness. big people with with chests and, you know, bristles. <laughs> it was rather intimidating. So I reacted in that by, by developing anemia. Yes, I was anemic and, and sickly at that time of my life. But, but then the next year, things were different because I got, I got streamed into a class with other people my age who had had a similar weedy, sickly experience <laughs> in the first year. <laughs> Yeah, it was called the brain class, I'm sorry, but that's what happened. And we got to we got to do an extra thing and we had a choice and we could either do typing, which I should have taken. It um, would have been that was a curse for a lot of women, wasn't it though? The, yeah, the fear that you'd become a typist. Secretary. That isn't why I didn't do it. I didn't do it because the people who were doing it were very intimidating to me. They smoked in the washroom. Remember how young I was in comparison with these people. <laughs> they scared the daylights out of me. So I took home economics. And that means if you want me to set in your zipper, but I I still cannot touch type. I I did try to teach myself, but I just got blisters. You wrote a great short story a few years ago called The Dead Hand Loves You, which was inspired by the kind of B-movie horrors of the 50s. 
tell me a bit about what you were watching and reading around this time. Okay, this would be the 50s. We're going into the 50s. 1951-2, I enter high school. 1955, Elvis Presley appears. 1950s, the middle of the 50s, were a big era of alien invasions. B-movies that were made on very cheap budgets. So the reason this spaceship looked like a hubcap was it was a hubcap. <laughs> That's why it looked like a hubcap. So Attack of the 60-Foot Woman, they did that by, by superimposing her on a landscape so you could see buildings and things through her. She was rather transparent. The Creeping Eye, that was a good one. It was, it was actually pretty good until the eye crept into view, at which point you could see the tractor treads underneath it. So The Head That Wouldn't Die, I think my favorite of all time, and other movies of that kind. The Head That Wouldn't Die lived in a jar. Uh, <laughs> there were a lot of heads in jars in the 50s. So I was reading a lot of sci-fi. I was reading, of course, Orwell and Huxley and H.G. Wells, The Collected Works, but also Ray Bradbury. It was the golden age of Ray Bradbury and a writer called John Wyndham, Day of the Triffids, The Midwich Cuckoos, which got turned into the film Village of the Damned. So a lot of that kind of thing I was mainlining, a lot of murder mysteries, but I was also reading my way through quite thick English and French classics. So I read, I actually read all of Les Miserables in translation at that time. I was reading Greek and, and Roman mythology because I was taking Latin, and that's where I was first horrified by the hanging of the twelve maids at the end of the Odyssey. It seemed to me very unfair at that time, and it still seems to me very unfair. It's basically an honor killing, but never mind. So that kind of thing, and a lot of folklore, what we now call fairy tales, so they don't all have fairies in them, and I've continued on collecting those. Oh, well, anyone who reads your work sees all these ideas from there seeded. You studied at the University of Toronto and then at Radcliffe College in the late 60s. At a, I think it's fair to say a radical time, early, a early, radical time for early, women. Early 60s. Oh, early 60s. I'm older than so, you think. <laughs> still, it was one of the famous seven sisters of female liberal arts colleges. It's now part of Harvard University. And there's an interesting generation of women who came out of colleges like that around the same time that you were there. What was it to be there at the time? And did it help shape you finding your voice as a, as a writer? Okay, so, so the 60s were the 50s until approximately 1966-67. And what happened in 1966-67? Number one, the pill became freely available, or more freely than it had been. Number two, the panty hoses were invented. So those were invented so in tight tights, tights, but you would not have had miniskirts. So what we think of as the 60s with miniskirts, um, summer of love, all that kind of thing, that happened at the end of the 60s. That at the beginning of the 60s, it was still the 50s. So that is when the Radcliffe Institute started, just exactly the same moment when I turned up as a graduate student there. I knew nothing about it, but people like Sylvia Plath, people like 
let me say, um, Tilly Olson was there at the Radcliffe Institute, and it was a, a radical thought at that moment because it was to give women who were married and had already had some artistic achievement, artistic or scientific achievement, some extra time. Like it gave them a year. They had an office, they had a stipend, and it was pretty radical. The person who got it through, actually, Betty Friedan was an early collaborator on that. The author of The Feminine Mystique. That's right, which he was writing at that moment. So Mrs. Bunting and Betty Friedan collaborated on the Radcliffe Institute. Odd collaborators, one of them quite genteel, the other one not. And uh, they helped each other with their respective work. So Mary Bunting was helping Betty Friedan with The Feminine Mystique, oddly enough. But I knew none of this. It was the Radcliffe Graduate School to begin with. The second year I was there, it became part of Harvard. So it was all the same program as Harvard anyway to begin with. It was an English department that did not hire women. It was known not to hire them. That, well, they had standards. Sorry. And uh, you couldn't get into the, the Lamont Library, which was the male undergraduate library, because you would be too distracting. And that's where the poetry was. So since I was already a poet and already publishing, I was quite annoyed by that. However, if you knew what book you wanted to get out, you could put in a requisition slip for it and get it out. So that meant that instead of being in the library with the poetry, I was down in the stacks of Widener Library reading about witches. Uh, Come in (laughs) handy since. It's come in handy. Demonology, very handy. So, yes... Did it have a formative influence on me? Why was I going there in the first place? I had intended to run away to France, uh, live in a garret, get TB, drink absinthe and smoke gitane, and die an early but romantic death after creating a masterpiece. But but that didn't happen. (laughs) One of my advisors said I would get more writing done at graduate school, which I think was probably true. I was going to support myself by being a waitress. And I later did have a job as a waitress, and I didn't write a word. It's very exhausting. And you also, I don't know about everyone else, but I lost my appetite because you're dealing with other people's plates of mushed-up food. Can I interrupt you here, partly because I'm conscious of the clock ticking, but when you said that, I was thinking of your first novel, The Edible Woman, which is the first book of yours that I read, published in 1969, about a woman who finds herself unable to eat as her life consumes her, published a very long time before the phenomenon of eating disorders were widely recognised. Indeed, in 1980s, it still felt like this was the book to read if you wanted to get (laughs) an inkling of them. So what inspired it? And as you say, this is before the women's liberation movement, you know, had really established itself. I was actually writing that book. I took two years off from, from graduate school. One of them I worked at a market research company, which I then transposed into The Edible Woman, though that wasn't my real boss. She was a much nicer person. And the second one, I was teaching basically grammar to engineering students at 8.30 in the morning in a Quonset hut on the campus of the University of British Columbia. And during that time, I was writing. I, I wrote one novel while working for the market research company, which did not get published. Thank you, Providence. It wasn't very good. It was still in a drawer. It was promising. It's in a drawer. It was promising, but it, but I'm happy that it didn't get published then. And the second one was the Edible Woman, which I wrote in UBC exam booklets on a card table overlooking Vancouver Harbor. One chapter per exam booklet. That's why they're that length. 
So <laughs> that is the early writing life of me. I was also writing poetry and short stories at the same time, publishing how poetry. How did you? Yeah. Can I ask how you juggled your voice between them? You know how you because the poetry to some extent got published first, but you had these three simultaneous voices. You I, still do. I did. This was in an age before there were creative writing schools. So I never went to one, and therefore nobody ever told me I had to do one or the other. Either be a fiction writer, and if you're a fiction writer, either be a novelist or a short story writer or a poet. So, so nobody said no. And the only way I can explain it is astrologically. It comes in so handy for explaining things that otherwise you can't explain. I have Gemini rising. That gives me a dual nature. So I'm well equipped to do two different or, or possibly many different things rather than just one thing. I can see the virtue of just doing one thing, but, but that's not who I've ever been. I want to jump ahead now to The Handmaid's Tale because... It had a new lease of life when Trump and I would say Mike Pence got elected and some saw a big pushback on female rights. It had first been published in, I think, was it 1985? When did the idea of The Handmaid's Tale first come to you? Because did that come to you long before you actually began writing the novel itself? Not long before. So in the 70s, there was a lot of second wave women's movement activity and a lot of what rights were actually won in that decade across the spectrum, all different kinds of rights, including, you know, divorce rights and whether you can have a bank account and this kind of stuff, which we've sort of forgotten it was ever like that, but it was. Um, So the 80s, you start seeing a pushback politically, and you start seeing, yeah, yeah, a backlash, a pushback, a backlash. Um, And you start seeing the rise of the religious right as a political force, focused on those ideas. So books like that come out of questions that you're asking yourself, and the questions that I was asking myself, number one, so women are out there running around in a feckless way out in the world and having jobs and incomes and things, and if, if what you want to do is push them back into the home, how do you do that? You know, what would be the mechanism for doing that? The credit card had been invented, and I thought, well, they'll just cancel all their credit cards and uh, fire them all. That's what they would do. And the second question would be, because I've always been interested in totalitarianisms and autocracies growing up when I did, if you were going to have a totalitarianism in the United States, what kind of totalitarianism would it be? So it wouldn't be, hi, my name is Joe, let's all be communists. That would not fly. But if it, if it would be some form of quasi-theocracy, which you see people pushing for this all the time, you know, they want to get God back into politics, which the founding fathers explicitly did not do because they had seen what had happened in the 17th century in, in Europe with religious wars. So they explicitly did not do that. And you're, you're constantly seeing a, a push of this faction that has always been there in the United States, which is a theocratic group of people, which is what the Puritans were, trying to get that you know, back in there so that they can start telling people what to believe and getting rid of other people. 
When the TV series spun off in 2017 and people started dressing up as handmaids at political protests, how, how did you feel about that? What did you make yeah, of it? Yeah, the, they had actually started doing that before the show. But, but that really gave an impetus to it because even before the show, people knew what that outfit meant. It was a visual signal. You didn't have to disrupt anything. You could go into a legislature. Nobody could kick you out because you weren't saying anything. And you weren't immodestly dressed. Heaven knows. You were all covered up. So nobody could eject you for having, you know, elbows sticking out or some loose thing like that. So, so it became very effective in a television age. Wouldn't have worked if we'd only had radio. But you could be there and just symbolize, just witness what was going on. And people started in Texas doing that. Women started it in Texas. And then it spread all over the place, including places like Argentina, including, including Ireland, really quite widespread when it was a question of laws being introduced that were counter to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. into the present now because we're talking a few months into the COVID-19 pandemic. I mentioned at the beginning you won an award as the Arthur C. Clarke Award for Imagination in Service to Society and thinking of your Oryx and Crake trilogy which saw pandemic combined with climate change. People are fascinated by your ability to seem to predict stuff that does happen. How are you looking at the situation we're in and thinking about using your voice? Dare I say it, are you taking notes? Am I taking notes? I think, I think other people are taking lots of notes. And I'm anticipating a whole generation of young people who have grown up in this. We're going to see some novels coming out of that. So having grown up in, at a time when we didn't have a lot of these vaccines that we now have, and when quarantine signs were pretty common, so it was uh, polio, it was... Uh, scarlet it was fever. A pandemic in uh, the 50s yeah, it was. It was measles. It was. We still didn't really have a good handle on on tuberculosis. So people had these endemic diseases, and we had quarantine. So it, it, to me, it felt like okay, this is. I remember this, <laughs> but this has been much more widespread. We never had shutdowns of society at that time. We had quarantines of particular houses and instructions like don't go to a public swimming pool because you might get polio, things like that. It's interesting that you have a memory of, of times of quarantine oh, sure. and polio in particular. The Testaments, the sequel to The Handmaid's Tale, was all about the people who rebel, including from within the power structure of Gilead, the young as well as the older. And I know that you are fascinated by whistleblowers and what drives them to speak out. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yes. There's a very good piece just now in The Atlantic about collaborators. And she follows two men initially. Her, her question is, why are, the, why are the Republicans going along with this? 
you know, why, why are they going along with these clear violations of the American Constitution? Why are they not saying anything except, I didn't see that, I didn't hear that, it's sort of like this. So she follows two men who grew up in the USSR, same education, same socioeconomic group. One of them becomes a collaborator and gets quite high up in the KGB. Some people say he was the model for Carla in uh, the Tinker Tailor Soldiers by George Smiley novels. And the other one becomes a dissenter. So what is it that causes one to become a collaborator and the other to become a dissenter? They both knew the same things about the regime. So what is that? And she gives about six reasons, one of them being fear, one of them being the feeling that you can do more good on the inside, one of them being just opportunism and the, and the lust for power. So those are very interesting to read because they they are the same kinds of motives that propel Aunt Lydia in the Testaments. So it's, it's an interesting study, but the more totalitarian a totalitarian regime is, the more you're likely to be doing it just to save your skin, you know, to avoid being the next person denounced. You're very active on Twitter, which can be a very vitriolic place, especially for women, especially for older women. There's a certain novelist who's found herself getting a lot of hate, uh, who's, who's very well known internationally. How do you use it for your voice? What's your relationship with it? Okay, so I was an early Twitter user before it developed its dark side. And, and anything human is going to have a uh, a good side, a bad side, and a stupid side that nobody anticipated. <laughs> and it's like it's like that for all of them. So I was there at the, uh, at the early idealistic phase of Twitter. Isn't it wonderful? We can all communicate with one another. So the OO moment hadn't arrived yet, and I used it as a little a little radio show. So I could have guests on by retweeting them or or saying hello to them and or promoting their thing, whatever it might be. I could let people know where I was going to be next in those days when we still got on planes, remember planes. So like that, and just put up things that I found interesting. Twitter would always give you an answer to a question. I put up a really weird mushroom once and said, what's this? Because I can't identify it. And I got 45 jokes, four wrong answers, and one right answer. <laughs> Let's dive into questions, uh, Margaret. So, where in your own successes might we find the most effective way of addressing gender imbalances, not only in power, but also in achievement? Well, no. You mean, you want me to be a role model? <laughs> I, I don't recommend myself as a role model, actually, because I'm, I'm just, I'm too eccentric, by, by which I mean I'm, I'm, I'm not typical enough. So not many people had a childhood like mine, and when I hear other people's stories about their families, my family was very egalitarian. So they, they did not make those kinds of gender discriminations. You can't do that because you're a girl. Nobody, nobody said that to me in my home, and oddly enough, they didn't say that to me in high school. So I don't think they started saying that to me until I was in university and was a published poet. So then I got a certain amount of women can't write really and you should really stop pretending you can. I got some of that. Who would that have come from? <laughs> Rival writers who happen to be male. <laughs> Don't, wouldn't you know? 
Yes, and uh, I did have one professor at university who said, why don't you just forget all this nonsense about, you know, going to graduate school and, and writing and find yourself a nice husband. He did actually say that. Amazing. But that was, you know, 1961. You could still get away with it. <laughs> right. Well, I've got two related questions. So I'm going to put them together about writing. Serena um, Ziliakis, are you finding it difficult to write during this time of COVID? I'm writing my first novel and finding it very difficult to continue my storyline. And there's another question from Paula Frisia who says you know, she wishes she could escape to the the childhood of yours, you know, without today's distractions. Any any advice about a routine to make an aspiring writer kind of be able to get it done? Yeah, so okay. Similar questions, really. The, the childhood of mine was not a golden age. World War II was going on. Millions were dying. And right after that, of course, we all thought we were going to be blown up by atomic bombs. It was the Cold War. There were all these bomb scares. I was in uh, Boston at the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis. We thought that bomb was going to drop on us at any moment. So this was not skippity-hoppity, carefree, la-di-da times at all. But what shall you do when you're feeling very anxious about other things? Your novel that you're writing is your escape. So open the door of the novel that you're writing, go in there, take some time off from whatever is going on on the news. Do not obsessively watch the news. It's going to be there when you come out of writing your novel. Do your two or three hours a day, or how many pages a day, which is I usually count by pages. And, and that is your time out. So if you think of it that way, um, you'll prob you will welcome those writing times and you will not be able to wait to get back into them. Right. I've got a couple of questions about Aunt Lydia. I knew we'd get questions about Aunt Lydia. She's got a kind of cult status now. So look, so I'm to put the two together. Serena, again, in the Testaments, do you feel Aunt Lydia is really repentant or is she self-serving to the end? And related to that, uh, Julia Stewart, can we forgive Aunt Lydia for what she did to individual women, considering her contribution to the downfall of Gilead? Uh, it's actually from Christina, that question. So sense of whether changing the system for within successfully kind of wipes out all the crimes? Uh, no, I don't think it does wipe <laughs> them out, but it's not an either-or. I think on the one hand, you can say, all right, you were, you were collaborating and you, you did bad things no matter what your excuse for doing them was. So part of her excuse for doing them was if she didn't get these people to toe the line, they were probably going to end up hanging from the wall. Because this is a real totalitarianism. It's not, it's not pretend. They're a series about killing people. Um, so somebody asked me, how do you know when things have really gone pear-shaped? I said, when they start shooting unarmed protesters. So Tiananmen Square, something like that, that would be a really pretty big signal. Uh, the other really scary thing is if, if unidentified military people start turning up, you can start getting worried about that. True. Talking as we are, and I'm going to put a question I had in mind together with a question from Serena. Will you let Trumpism influence a future novel or indeed future... Actually, let's take this on its own. Or indeed future episodes of Handmaid, because they are making the next series, aren't they? And you're quite involved in the... Okay, so my, my involvement is I have influence but no power. <laughs> so if you can understand that, what do I get to have? Conversations. 
Do people do what I say? Not always, no. So I am not... Can you veto? I cannot veto, no. And, and you'd okay. have to be mad if you were doing a television production of a of a book. You would be, have to be mad to give the author a veto because a lot of authors are really quite antagonistic to other portrayals of their work. And uh, they might veto for really fairly small reasons. So you don't have that you don't have that power and anyway the TV rights went with the original movie back in 1989. So I had actually no power over who got to make it. I had no decision-making power. I just got lucky. I happened to get people who really wanted to make it with a fair amount of accuracy rather than somebody who wanted to make maidens in leather or some uh, something of the kind. There have been some sexy handmade outfits that were on sale for a while. Very briefly. They they came yeah. and went quite briefly because and it wasn't even me who did anything about them. The the readers rose up in a swarm and <laughs> you can't do that. You cannot have sexy handmade Halloween costume with a little sort of frilly skirt. You cannot do that. Tell me briefly about the puppetry, because you did a version of The Mask of the Red Death, speaking about plague, with tableware for, for BBC TV during lockdown. The puppetry voice is, is one that you've kept over the years, isn't it? Well, you know, you can what make... What is it about you, that? that you what love? is it about that? So I started the puppetry really quite early. And I had a little, being an entrepreneurial person, I had a, a puppetry business in, in high school where we did children's birthday parties and we ended up with an agent. You know, we did this, we got paid. Uh, I had a partner, and we did all the voices. We built the stage, we built the puppets, and we did the essential shows for five-year-olds, which are all about cannibalism. So Hansel and Gretel, <laughs> Little Red Riding Hood, and the Three Little Pigs, cannibalism down the line. So kids love it. So those were the shows that we did. But if you have any any young people in your house, anything can be made to talk. So... Hello, my name is Glass of Water. I'm saying hello to you. Hello, hello. <laughs> Eerie, isn't it? Uh, or you can just, you know, hello. <laughs> That's more like hey, it. Hello, hello. That's uh, definitely yeah, the mask so, of death. Yeah, so we, we did that. My sister and I did it just really because uh, Mary Beard had, had said, can you do something, a little something or other that's plague-related? And what immediately comes to mind but Edgar Allan Poe. And our rule was that we wouldn't make puppets out of anything that was not available to us right in the house. So we did the, the table-setting players. We used a champagne bottle for Prince Prospero, and um, we used upside-down wine glasses for the courtiers. We dressed them up, and we did the fortified abbey of Prince Prospero with knives and forks. It looked very fortified. I have one more question I need to ask you, which is your image. There were these particularly wonderful photographs of you in a British newspaper around the time of the Testaments with beautifully styled but quite wild hair, these long robes. You have a devoted following. I thought you were playing with the way that you're seen, a kind of seer, a kind of prophetess, an element perhaps of playing with the idea of witchcraft. Is it a burden being regarded as you are as a kind of prophetess? There's a good side, a bad side, and a really stupid side to everything. <laughs> so good side, I don't have to have a job. <laughs> and and the other part of that good side, I suppose, is that 
um, I can afford to say things publicly that other people can't because they might get fired. So there, there's that, which is a, a responsibility. I wouldn't call it a burden. I would call it a responsibility. The bad side, of course, is that some people really do think you're a witch. And not, not a totally good history, witches. You know, not, not always turned out well for them. <laughs> But you we, know, I have this have thing, I would love of... you to meet Mike Pence and have, I'd pay to see that conversation with you and Mike oh, Pence, I don't although think he wouldn't be in a room a alone with you, would he? Uh, no, that's fine. I, I wouldn't want to be in, in a room alone with him either. I might, you know, something terrible might happen. I might, I might, I might devour him. You know, they would go in and there would be no more Mike Pence. And what did you, what have you done with Mike? And there would just be some, some shoes. Uh, sorry, I'm uh, playing with my witch image here. <laughs> okay, I'm going to take one more question because this is a good one. Patricia Williams, my worst example of discrimination was when I wrote to our building society about our marriage and they replied to my husband, dear Mr. Horse, thank you for your wife's letter. What's the worst example you've had? Well, you mean a, 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 as a female person? Yeah. Oh, boy. I think I've been fairly lucky in that respect. I suppose the, the university professor who said, why didn't I forget all this graduate school and writing stuff and just yeah. get a nice, a nice husband? Yeah, that was pretty stupid. But, you know, because I was brought up in a pretty egalitarian way, I never paid any attention to those people anyway. And, and why would you respect the opinion of somebody like that? Why would you give it any weight? I ask you. I know we do, of course, because we feel hurt or we feel attacked in some way. But, but as I said, other people's stuff is about them. If somebody has displayed their a not admirable part of their personality to you, and uh, as far as taking it personally or thinking they're they're right, blow it off. Lovely. That's a great way to end. Margaret Atwood, I can't thank you enough for your time. And I have to say, for all your personal support for me over what's been a quite bizarre year. And, and, and hooray thank you. for you. You know, you, you, <laughs> you struggled, but you triumphed. Hooray for you. Well, and, and by doing that, you made life easier for a whole bunch of other people. I had a whole load of important people doing the heavy lifting, like my union and my lawyers, of course. But um, thank you. This podcast was made by Intelligence Squared. The producer was Farah Jassat. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please do subscribe. Tell your friends and your family to check it out. And we'd really appreciate it if you could also take a very quick moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. This helps us to raise the profile of the podcast and it helps other people to find the show. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. 
We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Partnerships.